Uh, good morning again. Keep your Bibles where they're at, okay? We're going to be right there in that text. Uh, we're going to be looking at 21, 27 through uh, 36 this morning. That's our focus. That's where we've made it to in our study in the book of Acts. Uh, we started it in 1971. It feels like it. Um, we started it probably two and a half maybe close to three years ago. So uh, it's been, been pretty exciting, though. We've taken a few breaks here and there. Uh, but that's the text we're going to be looking at. Last week, uh, we looked at how Paul, the Apostle Paul, sort of wrapped up his third missionary journey uh, by going to Jerusalem to give an offering that he had collected at all the churches he had planted through Macedonia and Achaia. And uh, he, he kind of came back to Jerusalem during the, uh, right before the Feast of Pentecost uh, and uh, brought that offering to the elders, James and the elders, and also gave them a report. That's what we've been looking at. Uh, a nasty rumor had been spread about his preaching. Uh, Jews from uh, probably at least one of the areas, I would say, uh, you know, wherever Paul went in, this, in the Gentile lands, there were still little bands of Jews in those places, and, and some of these Jews had listened to Paul preach, and I'll just believe that he was preaching against the law of Moses or something of that nature. And so this rumor was going around that this kind of lawless, you know, preacher, this guy, this Jewish preacher of all, is kind of preaching against the law of Moses and trying to lead the Jewish people away from their heritage and, and, and all that that entails. And so this nasty rumor was spinning and circulating in Jerusalem by the time he gets there. Uh, that, that's what's happening, and James and the elders kind of came up with a plan to sort of show the community, and it wasn't just non-believers or just Jewish people that believed this rumor. There were people in the church, too, that had a hard time with this. There were zealous Christians in there. They were zealous for the law, and so they were hung up on the law, too, and circumcision and these things. But anyways, James and the elders came up with a plan to, to have Paul take four Nazarites and help them uh, become ceremonially cleansed and complete their Nazarite vow at the temple. And so their idea was, why don't you accompany them and pay their wages, pay for their sacrifices and their haircuts. You know, they got super cuts set up at the gate, you know, at the temple there. And why don't you just fund that for them? And, and why don't you uh, be ceremonially cleansed at the Pool of Bethesda or at Siloam along with them? You've been traveling in Gentile lands and, you know, the way that people think around here that you've become dirty because of that. And you know, and so there wasn't really any harm in them asking Paul to do this, but they figured if he went along with sort of the rituals and, uh, you know, the things that they did, part of their law, that the people in the community would see that he's not a lawless preacher and that he supports the law of Moses and whatever. And so uh, that's pretty much kind of where we left off. He did take the Nazarites and he went down and sort of initiated the process. And... Uh, Paul essentially agreed to do these things because he wanted to maintain the unity and peace of the church and the community, especially during the Feast of Pentecost. He didn't want to do anything to create a ruckus or an uproar, and so he agreed to do those things, and he went down and initiated that process, and that's where we left off. Let me pray one more time. Father, um, there is so much to cover in this text, and it's amazing. Always, I'm always amazed at how you know, I take a look at just a couple of paragraphs of scripture and, and I don't see a lot there at first and then I begin to dig a little deeper and find out just how intricate, uh, intricate and how exhaustive your word can be, how amazing it is. And so this is one of those instances. There's a lot to cover this morning from this text. I pray that you'd uh, help me to do that uh, in, in a way that glorifies you and, and is clear and is edifying to your church. And even evangelistic to, to, to anyone in this room who has yet to come to know you in a saving way. And so be glorified here this morning. Open our hearts and minds, our ears, our eyes to the truth. Teach us, lead us, sanctify us, make us more like Christ in this moment. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Well, let's pick up at verse 27, okay? You there? Chapter 21, verse 27. And... Uh, a lot of stuff to, to notice in this whole text, as I alluded to in, in the prayer. But 27 reads, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that's speaking of Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. <laughs> now, first thing we notice about this text is the purification process that Paul agreed to take part in took seven days. 
It was a week-long thing. Uh, on, on the first day, the adherent or the person would go to that pool of Siloam or Bethesda and be washed and ceremonially cleansed. It was kind of like this little baptism sort of ritual, if you will. And once they went in there and got cleansed by that water, then they were thought of as ceremonially pure. And, and so the first day kind of began with that. And after you went down and got washed, and that may have even cost you a few shekels, who knows? You go down and you get dunked, basically. You get washed, and then you got to go to the temple uh, to give notice, like, hey, I've entered into this time of purification. So you give notice, and then you got to pay for the sacrifices. If sacrifices are due, you got to pay for them. Now, keep in mind, Paul had four other guys with him, so they all had to get washed, and they all had to, you know, their sacrifices had to be covered too. And I think there were two per guy. And so this was pretty expensive. This would have been a, an expensive process. When Paul said, yeah, I'll do it, you know, he was also writing a check, if you will. So this cost him a few bucks. On day three, during this process, on day three, the person returned to the temple again. And I'm not sure why. I, I searched all over the place trying to figure out why they went back to the temple uh, for whatever reason they went back, I couldn't find anything uh, that had to do with it. I suspect the reason why he went back on that third day was so that those Nazarites could have their hair cut because that hair had to be taken and put on the altar on the last day. And so, but I'm not sure why he was there, but he was there on the third day. And I think that the third day is what uh, Luke is referencing here. You know, when the seven days were almost completed, I think this is the halfway point where they were almost completed, and I think that's where this took place. And then on that seventh day, the last day, so you have the first day you got to do something, third day you got to do something. On the seventh day, the last day, you got to return to the temple, and that's where you offer your sacrifices and complete the process of purification. And in the case of the Nazarites, it was also simultaneously the completion of their Nazarite vow, which is a 30-day pledge and thing. And so that's kind of how that whole thing worked out. Now, before the purification process was completed, before the seven days were up, Jews from Asia found Paul at the temple and they started trouble. That's what the text says. And so what, what happens here, when you, you read down in the narrative a little further, you realize the plan that James and the elders came up with for Paul didn't work. Like if you do this, maybe it'll kind of quell the people, it'll kind of chill them out, and they'll know that you're a law-abiding citizen, that you don't preach against the law of Moses, and everything will be honky-dory, everything will work out. And what you realize here in that very first verse in 27 is it didn't work. The plan did not work because as soon as these guys saw Paul at the temple, for whatever reason that he was there, they exploded on him. They laid hands on him. Now, these Jews, it says, were Asian, and we don't want to think of Asian folks. We want to think of Asia Minor. And so these folks were from Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor. And so uh, these Jews had traveled from basically Asia Minor, from Ephesus, all the way to Jerusalem as pilgrims for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, back when Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus... Um, these particular Jews, he, you know, he was preaching in the synagogue at first. That was his practice, right? Every time he went into a new city or a new territory, he would look for a synagogue and preach because he was, knew that his calling was to preach to the Jew first and the Gentile second. So God still had a plan for his people. Preach the gospel to the Jews first if you can. And so he did that at the synagogue at Ephesus, and that's where he came across these particular Ephesian Asian Jews, if you will. And they rebuffed him. They rebuked him. They resisted the gospel. They maligned the gospel. One time, I think, and I know it says that they basically started to tell the church that the gospel was false and that it was evil. But I think that they were in the habit of trying to interrupt Paul as he was proclaiming Christ crucified and resurrected. They would try to interrupt him and, and kind of get in there and say, hey, don't listen to this guy. You know, he's teaching false doctrine. He's teaching against the law of Moses and what have you. So Paul had run-ins back in Ephesus with these particular guys. In fact, it got so bad in Ephesus that Paul had to leave the synagogue and start preaching at the hall of Tyrannus. You might remember that from back in Acts 19, verse 9. And so he knew who these guys were. They knew who he was. They were troublemakers back at Ephesus. They'd come all the way out there. I don't think they came all the way out for the purpose of nailing Paul, but they came out for the Feast of Pentecost, and then, you know, they obviously found him. And, and isn't that interesting? Uh, the entire Jewish world 
not just Jerusalem, but the entire Jewish world. There were diaspora Jews and uh, scattered Jews all over the region, all over the world, really. And that was really the modern, the known world at that time. And they were out, you know, a thousand miles away from this location, and yet they would all converge at Jerusalem, at the temple for these feasts, especially Passover. And so this was a huge feast, which means that Jews had come as pilgrims from all over the world, literally, to worship during this feast. And, and what is so amazing about that is that somehow, in, in, you know, inside of the temple gates, inside of one of the courts here, there's thousands upon thousands of local Jews, and, and, and there's thousands and thousands of diaspora Jews all gathered in this place, probably 5, 10, 15, 20,000 people, and Paul's like Waldo in the midst, and somehow these guys find him. There he is! Do you think they were looking for him? Absolutely. I just think it's absolutely amazing. And then in the midst of all of this, they find him. Was he wearing a plaid silly shirt, a striped shirt like Waldo? I mean, how, how do you find this guy in the midst of thousands and thousands of people? I think that you've got to be looking for him or at least mindful that he might be there. Maybe they had heard that he, you know, because he had been in Ephesus. And then he went from, from there he went down to Miletus. And then he traveled to, you know, the, the, the coast of, of Palestine. And then he made his way into Jerusalem. I think they knew where he was going. I think they were looking for him. Who knows? But they managed to find him there. And when they found him, they laid hands on him, it says. And, and that particular phrase has a violent connotation. Laying hands on someone isn't, brother, let me pray for you, you know. <laughs> Laying hands on them is, you know, putting a choke on him, rear naked choke. You know, they were, they were on him, right? They saw him. They started grappling him. They started wrestling. They grabbed a hold of him, man. They laid some violent hands on this guy. Pretty, pretty insane. And I'd like to say this, and I'm going to kind of make a few references to some of these other things. I mean, I, I'm not really pulling this from the text. This is a little bit of an extrapolation, but I think it's important to know that what was guiding these Jews from Asia, why were they there? Why were they there to cause trouble? Why were they laying violent hands? I mean, these are, these are religious people. Religious people aren't always known for being violent, but boy, is that different in our day and age, right? Religious people are becoming increasingly violent. And, and, you know, you got the Christian crusades and all these other things that have taken place. You've got radical Islam and all this. So religious people are, I mean, I guess they have a propensity be, to be violent. These are Jews. They weren't normally all that violent. So what would lead these Jews from Asia to, to, to do what they were doing, to rebuff Paul back in Ephesus and, and to lay hands on him at this particular place? I'll tell you what it was. It was ignorance and fear. They were ignorant of the gospel. They were ignorant of their own scriptures. They were ignorant of their own Messiah, right? Jesus came for the Jewish people, and, and yeah, for people throughout the whole world, no doubt. But these guys were ignorant of the gospel. They didn't have ears to hear it. They didn't have hearts to receive it. And they, they were fearful. They were afraid that... That somebody like Paul, who had done before, they were afraid of somebody like him in that, you know, in his message that he would lead people away from their following, that he would lead people away from their religion, that he would cause some to abandon their ways to begin to embrace another way of life and living. You know, religious people will do whatever they can to try to stop others from harming their religion. They really will. If the religion that they adhere to is threatened, they will at least, at the very minimum, speak about that and defend it verbally. And some of them take it even further. Charlie Hebdo is a good example of that, right? You're familiar with the Parisian paper that was just attacked by some maniacs who shot the whole place up and killed 12 people, including two police officers who were unarmed. I, I, that's an interesting thing. I'm a cop and I'm unarmed. Only in Paris. <laughs> Here, you'd have got blasted. Those guys would have never made it out of the car holding AK-47s. And Charlie Hebdo is a good example of that. And, and why is it that religious people do this? Why do they react 
in such a way. I mean, think about it. Amongst all these people, these guys reacted when they saw Paul and they laid hands on him. They were violent towards him. Why do religious people do these things in defense of their religion? I'll tell you why. Because their religion is the source of their self-righteousness. Their religion is the source of their self-worth. Their religion is the, is the source of their self-purpose and their self-identity. The religion is, a, is ultimately the source for all those things, but it is like a reflection of who they believe they are. And so when you attack the religion, you attack them personally. And that's what causes the violence throughout the world today when it comes to religion. How dare you speak about Allah or this or that? Because that is a reflection of these people. And therefore, they defend their religion because they feel that they are defending themselves. And so often they say that I'm, I'm a soldier for this God or that God and I'm doing this for this God or that God. No, no, no. Actually, the reality is you're actually doing this for you because that thing is the source for all that you are and who you've become. And so that's why this happens. And that's what was taking place here. And the Jews are no different. They, many, many, and multitudes took Judaism, which the entire point of it was to point to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And many of them had taken this thing and made their religion out of it and wrapped up their whole identity in it and were willing to defend it, even to the point of taking some other guy like this and laying some, some nasty hands on him. Now look at 28... And 29, uh, this is what they did once they laid some, some hands on Paul. It says, crying out, right? Men of Israel, help! Exclamation point, right? Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, look at this. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Wow, 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 wow. This is incredible. So while subduing Paul, remember they laid hands on him. They've got a grip on him. They're probably slapping him around, probably insulting him, probably hurting him. While subduing him, while laying hands on him, they launched a verbal attack. And I like how they identified Paul right there in that verse. They identified him as one who had international influence, right? It says teaching everyone everywhere. The, the, the idea there is that everywhere he goes, and let me tell you, he's been to a lot of places. He's teaching everyone everywhere. And the fact of the matter is, and they knew this, Paul was known throughout the whole Roman world, which was the modern world at the time. That was the place of advancement, technology, industry. And he was known throughout this entire Roman Empire, which was the largest and most powerful empire in the world at that time. He was known everywhere, and he had gone everywhere teaching all the people. And, and that just reminds me of something, maybe a question, and that is, how many of us are known for our faith in this community? Okay, we're talking about world influence here for Paul. Let's just back that up a little bit because that's big. And let's just think about ourselves. How many of us are actually known in our community, the community in which you reside and live and do life and go grocery shopping and go to school and work and all these things, how many of us are actually known in this community because of our faith? Do your fellow workers know that you're a believer? Do your classmates know that you're a believer? Do the players on your sports team or at your gym or whatever, do they know that you're a believer? Do your neighbors know that you're a believer? Do the members of your own church know you're a believer? Well, of course they do. I come to church. Hey. Hold on, man. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you look. I mean, you kind of look like a believer because you're there. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're influencing and doing things and saying things and living in such a way that would convince the other people that worship side by side with you that you're a believer. In fact, that's got to be one of the most frustrating things in the world for an elder at this church or at any church. They see a whole bunch of people come together who claim to be Christians who don't live like it. 
Don't even act like it. They do when they're here. Oh, right? When they leave here. Are you a person of influence? Can any of us in this room say that we're like Paul? Man, I'm known around the world, especially in Japan. Made it big there. What kind of dent, what kind of impact are we making? Do people in your own house know that you're a follower of Jesus? Forget about leaving this place and doing it somewhere else at your school or whatever. Let's just talk about it in your home. And I can tell you in every church there's people who claim Christ who do not live that way in their home. And their wives or their husbands and their children are confused. Well, daddy goes to church every Sunday with his mama and he he lifts, we're from Kentucky, and he lifts his hands up and he worships when he's not working at the steel. But when he comes in the door, he's just mean and nasty and he don't ever read his Bible and he don't pray. Man, what kind of influence? How are we living out our faith, man? Faith is meant to be lived out, not lived within. I just read that and I thought, man, I don't know if I'm making much of a dent. I don't know if this community, and again, at the end of the day, it ain't about me. It ain't about how much people know about me or how popular I become. Am I making Jesus known? Because I can tell you right now, that is a command for you, believer, if you are a believer. That is commanded. That is not optional. Every believer should be a person of influence at their church, at their home, at their workplace. I don't mean you're an idiot going around beating everyone up with a Bible. I did that for a long time, man. People were like, we don't like him. Kill him. And I thought, look it. They want to trade me for Barabbas. Well, at that point, I'd have taken Barabbas over me too. I was like Barabbas' stepson. What's an interesting thing here. Now, after identifying Paul as one who had international influence, literally teaches everyone everywhere, they made three charges against him. Number one, Paul teaches against the people. Which people were they referring to here? The people of Israel, the people of God. And I'll tell you what, this charge was false. Luke, the author of Acts, never reported about Paul teaching against the Jewish people. On the contrary, he always taught in synagogues before he taught in front of uh, Gentile audiences. Paul's practice, as I mentioned earlier, was always to present the gospel to Jews first and to the Gentiles second. In Romans 9, 3, Paul said that if it were possible, I'm paraphrasing, if it were possible, he would give up his salvation that some of his Jewish brethren would get saved. He would actually trade. I'll take their condemnation and I'll give them my salvation. Does that sound like, do those sound like the words of a guy who preached against his own people? Those sound like the words of a guy who would do anything for his own people. And I can tell you this, I've been a believer for about 15 years. I don't think I've once said, God, just take my salvation away and give it to Joseph, that neighbor well, I've never felt that way about anyone else. I've said quite the opposite. Keep me saved and I hope you do something for them. The selflessness of Paul. This indictment against him here that he preaches against the people is ridiculous. We all know that because we've been studying the book of Acts and we've been watching how he preaches and what he does and how he loved people and how he suffered at the Jews' hands and all that. This is ridiculous. It's preposterous. He did not preach against the people, but that's one of their claims. Secondly, that he, Paul teaches against the law. This was a slightly more serious claim here. It kind of increases. Preaching against the people's bad. Preaching against the law is really bad. The law here is a reference to the law of Moses. Remember, that's the rumor. They may have been the perpetrators of the rumor. Teaching against the law of Moses was equivalent to teaching against the identity of Israel as God's people because the law was given by God as a means to define and separate them from the rest of the world. The law of Moses literally maintained Israel's status as the people of God. When they didn't obey the law, they looked like the pagans around them. When they obeyed the law and did what they were supposed to do, they looked like the people of God. If you were to remove the law of Moses from Israel, they would very quickly become like the nations around them who lived according to their own man-made pagan statutes. 
And that is the struggle of Israel, ancient Israel, right? The Old Testament, back and forth, obedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience. Following the ways of the people around them, Canaanites, kill them all. We didn't do that. We left a whole bunch of them. Now we're like them. If they did not have the law, they would essentially lose their status as the people of God. They would become identifiable with the world rather than with God. The law of Moses was literally the dividing line between the people of Israel and every other people group on earth. An attack on the law was an attack on Israel's identity as the people of God. And that's why there were immediate repercussions in place against those who attacked it. And that's precisely why they're making this claim. Because they know that it's going to really tick everyone off who hears them. He preaches against the people. Okay, that's bad. Maybe we should do something. He preaches against the law. Get him! And I think about this. Do you know what the Feast of Pentecost is? It is a commemoration of the issuing of the law. What a perfect place to talk about that guy over there preaching against the law. Everyone there is there to commemorate the issuing of the law from Moses or from God to Moses to the people as their identity. And so when you say there's a lawless one here amongst a whole bunch of people there that are there to celebrate the law, wow, think of the repercussions. And this claim was also untrue. Paul did not preach against the law of Moses ever. He did, however, teach that certain aspects of the law should not be forced on Gentiles by Jews, which is what Jews try to do all the time. In order to be a true Christian, you must first become a Jew through circumcision or through these things. And guess what? You need to go to every festival and feast at Jerusalem, five or six, seven of them every year, pretty costly to travel all over the place and do these things. These are the, this is the attitude of Jewish converts, not all of them, but many of them. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You must also be circumcised and circumcise your kids on the eighth day and, and do this and go to this feast and do that. They added all these stipulations to Christianity. And so Paul may have sounded like he was preaching against the law, but actually what he was doing is rebuking them for doing that. Do not command the Gentiles who have no concept. Don't you guys understand that the Gentiles were not given the law of Moses? Why would you try to bind them up by it? They love Jesus. These guys love Jesus. Why are you trying to confuse them? That's what he preached. And thirdly, Paul teaches against this place. And what place is he referring to? Where are they standing? The temple. This was the most serious claim. People, bad thing. Against the law, really bad thing. Against the temple, way over the top. This was the most serious claim by far. Teaching against the temple was equivalent to teaching against God himself. Not just against the law of God, not just the people of, law, uh, people of God, but literally against God himself. The temple was the place of God's holy presence on earth. It was the place of God's holy presence whose holiness was the effective foundation of Israel's holiness. The only place where Jews could offer sacrifices and receive forgiveness of sins and restore purity. That's what the temple represented to them. Teaching against the temple was a form of blasphemy and punishable by death. Instant death. Similar charges were brought against Stephen. Remember him? Back in Acts 6.13, basically, they kind of said that he preached against the people, but not really against the people a whole lot. He really preached against, this is what the, they alleged, he preached against the law of Moses and he preached against the temple. And, and how did that end for him? He was killed. Rocks were thrown at him till he wasn't breathing. And that was the goal of the Jews from Asia here. Boy, if we claim that he's been against the people and against the law and against the temple, we know how that'll come out too. It'll happen just like that buffoon Stephen who did this 15 years earlier or however long it was. That's what they were aiming for. And then the Asian 
Jews or the Jews from Asia added more fuel to the fire by claiming that Paul had brought a Gentile into the inner court, therefore defiling the temple. This was huge, man. This just took all of this up to a whole nother level. They saw Trophimus with Paul in the city and reckoned that he had brought him into the forbidden zone of the temple. Now, how did they know who Trophimus was? Where was Trophimus from? Ephesus. These guys knew him. Trophimus was a leader at the Ephesian church, which was in their hometown of Ephesus. Now, the temple featured several courts and gates. The inner courts were for Jews only. Okay? The inner courts were for Jews only. The outer courts were for Gentiles, non-Jews. You know, you did have some Gentiles who sort of converted over to Judaism or who were worshipers of the Jewish God or the God of, the God, the true God, really, if you think. There were some worshipers, but they could not go into the inner courts. They had to stay as long as they had Gentile blood, no matter what. Even when they were converted and, and went through all the purity rites and all that purif purification stuff and all that to become kind of Jewish in a sense, they still were known as Gentiles and they had to remain out of the inner courts. And above the gates to the inner courts, there was a sign that warned Gentiles not to enter. And it literally said something of the effect of do, Gentiles, do not come in, you will be killed. Do not pass this point or you will be killed. Now, interestingly, and if you know this time period, you'll know that the Romans were in charge, that they were the ruling faction in the land, that they were in control, and that their laws prevailed over all Jewish law and all of that and what have you. And you'll know, because you can even look at the example of Jesus, that the Romans did not permit the Jews to execute anyone without a Roman trial or approval. Okay, so that's the way that it worked. The Jews had some offenses that they could, you know, exercise capital punishment against. Blasphemy of God, you know, defiling the temple, these sorts of things speaking against the temple, they could seek to have you executed for doing those things, but they could not execute you on their own. They had to take it before the Roman consulate, before the Roman governor, and present their case. We saw that with Jesus, right? But guess what? Not when it comes to this rule. The Jews could exercise the death penalty immediately. The Romans did not overrule this thing. And this is insane, even a Roman citizen, if they crossed that line, they could be killed right there without any sort of trial, without even making it known to the guys above. Isn't that crazy? And this is how serious this is right here. This is how serious this is. If a Gentile crossed that line, what they would do is they would grab him and they would drag him out of the inner courts into the outer courts or even beyond the temple. And really the way they should have done it was take him outside of the city gates and killed him there. And it seems like that's kind of what they're aiming to do here. This is what they were shooting for. Now, they knew though that if their case, this claims that they were making, if they, these claims that they were making were put before authorities and then weighed out by attorneys, if you will, they knew that it would not fly because their allegations were all false. There was no evidence. And it talks about that in a later chapter, a couple chapters up. In fact, Paul goes before Festus. And Festus says, there's no reason for you to be before me here based on these claims. So these guys did not have a real case against Paul, Okay. But their strategy is to get everyone into a frenzy quickly so he's beaten to death and killed before anything else can take place. That's what they're shooting for here. That's why they made those claims. And that's why they made that most serious claim of him taking Trophimus into the forbidden zone. This was their strategy. We know we can't win in court. We know we can't win if the authorities are here. But let's just create a bunch of ruckus and get him killed in the midst of all of this. Now look at verse 30. 
Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. The news about Paul, (laughs) about this lawless person who had defiled the temple, spread throughout the whole city like wildfire. People from every corner of the city literally ran towards the temple and flooded through all the gates and went into all the courts and laid hands on Paul and seized Paul. Now it wasn't just the Jews from Asia that had hands on him. The whole dang city's ripping at him. It says, they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Let me ask you a question. The claim was that Trophimus, the Gentile, had crossed the lines. He was really the guilty guy, so why didn't they seize him and drag him out? I'll tell you why, because he wasn't there. He wasn't in the inner court where Paul was. Paul wasn't stupid. He knew better than to bring his Gentile friend into that zone. Do you think Paul would have done something to jeopardize his life? Maybe with preaching the gospel in hostile areas, absolutely. But never in some circumstance like this where there's an accidental line crossing or a deliberate one causing the friend of your death. He would have never done anything like that. Paul never brought him into the inner court. There's no evidence of that. They saw Trophimus with him in the city, and so they reckoned that he had brought him into there. And amazingly, the people are so blinded by their religious zeal that they believe every word that these criminals are saying, that these deceivers are saying. Now, the term out of the temple refers to the inner courts of the temple. One might be led to believe here that they removed him from the temple grounds completely. No, 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 no. Out of the temple means out of the inner courts of the temple, out of the Gentile free zone. The city... People literally poured in to the inner courts of the temple and then dragged Paul out. Now let me ask you this. How many of those city people were Gentile or ceremonially unclean? At what point did the temple become defiled because of an allegation about Paul or because everyone in the dang town rushed into this place? You realize all these folks that weren't on the temple grounds were conducting secular business and, and doing what they were doing in market and trade and all of these things throughout the city. And all of a sudden they pour into the inner courts where they're not supposed to be. What point? Who caused the temple to get defiled here? Was it Paul or was it the Jews from Asia? There's nothing said about that here. But it's there. Because they went into the inner courts and dragged Paul out. How many of those people weren't supposed to be in there? Who, how many of those people weren't authorized to be in there? It's amazing how people become so zealous that they actually break their own religious laws. That was the moment where the temple became defiled. And then also notice the gates were shut. So they removed Paul from the inner courts and shut the gates to the inner courts. Again, above it was the sign that said, don't come in here. And this right here reminds me of the whole whole idea of the gates being shut reminds me of performance-based religion. You know, when a person keeps all the rules of that religion, the gates of heaven all remain open to them. But when they fail to obey all the rules when they fail to adhere to all of those religious precepts, those gates are closed. And so all of life is about the gates are open one moment, they're closed the next, they're open, they're closed, they're open, they're closed. And every religion in the world is basically based on this idea. Based on our works and performance and obedience, performance to the rules, Based on people earning heaven, keeping those gates open because I keep doing all the right things and obeying all those rules. But Christianity is different. It is the only religion in the world that is based on someone else's works, someone else's performance, someone else's obedience, that of Jesus. And the person who turns from all self-effort, 
trying to earn heaven, the person who renounces all sin. And that doesn't mean that they stop sinning necessarily. It means that their desire and love for sin dies, is quenched. Their love for God comes in. The person who turns from all self-effort, I'm going to save myself, I'm going to earn my way with God, turns from sin. The person who does that and turns to Christ as Lord and Savior does receive heaven. And the gates are never closed to him, ever. The gates of heaven will never be shut to him even when he stumbles, even when he fails, even when he disobeys at times, even when he makes a mess of his life. Isn't that a glorious truth? Look at 31 through 32. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. There's your laying on of hands, your violent connotation. The crowd was literally trying to kill Paul. They were actually hurling stones at him as others had done back in Lystra. They were trying to kill him right at this very moment. They were trying to put him to death. Look, you couldn't kill a person inside of the inner courts. And I don't think it was wise to do it in the outer courts. But they just couldn't get any farther because of this mob. And so they were trying to kill him on the temple premises. God does not delight in the sacrifices of human beings by any measure. But they were trying to kill him right there in the Gentile courts. And they started throwing rocks at him and beating him. They were trying to put him to death right there. And then word came to the tribune that the whole city was in confusion and confusion should be thought of as absolute chaos and turmoil. The whole city was in an uproar over this one guy and four allegations. Now the tribune was the highest ranking Roman official or officer in the city while the governor was away, probably at his governor's palace in Caesarea. And so this guy was in charge of anything that had to do with the community and anything that had to do with anything like Rome. This guy was the big dog. And the tribune, along with soldiers, was stationed at the Tower of Antonia, which was connected to the outer court of the temple. There were literally, there was this tower that held hundreds and hundreds of soldiers and it was connected right to the temple and it was there deliberately because if there was going to be an uprising or something crazy that went on in Jerusalem, it would happen at the temple. Why? Because there were Jews there that were fanatical and crazy. And so this, temp, this tower was right there and it literally had steps that came right down into the outer court, into the Gentile court. And so these guys were up in this tower and man... This tribune hears that what's going on. He takes notice of what's happening down below in the outer court, probably in the inner court too, and everywhere else. And he summoned two centurions with their detachments. A centurion had 100 soldiers with him. He summoned at least two, according to the text. That means he came down those stairs into the outer courts with two centurions and 200 soldiers. Talk about ready to kick some butt. The Romans were... were big on making a showing of force. They knew that if we're on the precipice of a riot, we better, we better meet that, what's happening, with a higher level of threat and violence than what's going on so we can stop it. They knew how to fight wars and to deal with these things. And I've been saying that, you know, for a little while here. If, if we're going to be at war with radical Islam, you're going to have to meet it with an equal level, if not higher level of violence. Because it's just not, you know, well, you need to drop Bibles there. Well, sure. We want to provide kindling for them? It's a, it's a sad reality. It's what we're facing. It's what we're dealing with. You can't, you, you cannot turn off people like this. And these guys, man, they came down those steps with this tribune and man. They flooded into the, into the outer court. And when they appeared, what happened? That frenzied mob stopped beating Paul. Stop trying to kill him. And I'll tell you what, I believe Paul was badly hurt at this point. If he was getting hit by rocks and beaten up and pulled in all directions by 500 people, <laughs> as if they could all get their hands on him, they were certainly trying to. Uh, we shouldn't think that, you know, he was okay 
He's probably bloodied, hair pulled out, beard plucked. He's in bad shape. Look at 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him. That's nice, right? <laughs> you're getting your butt whipped by all these people, and you're the one that goes to jail. You ever watch cops? It happens every time. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm yelling at the TV, why are you taking him? He didn't do nothing. Right? Rachel's like, you're stupid for watching that. It's entertaining. So, so these guys come down, and, 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 he's, and they stop beating him, but he's the one that gets... Hemmed up. He's the one that gets rolled up. He's the one that gets arrested. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. <laughs> two chains. He, and it says he inquired who he was and what he had done. That's 33. Look at that, man. Right there, right there, right there at that moment. The prophecy of Agabus, which had been issued just days before, came to pass. Remember how Agabus came to him and and took off Paul's belt and tied himself up with it and said, the man who owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to him. That's what happened. He was chained. He was shackled. He was probably even tied to a, another soldier maybe. That's a lot of times what they did. But that prophecy came true right there. Now you must understand that the tribune did not come down the stairs with a Superman S on his chest thinking that he was going to save Paul. He didn't give one shake about Paul. He had no idea who he was. But his responsibility, his primary responsibility was to keep the peace in Jerusalem. And so when, you know, literally all hell broke loose, that's my job on the line. And so he floods down there with his soldiers and, and arrests Paul and tries to stop what's going on. But he wasn't interested in, you know, oh, we got to help him. He intervened to quell the riot. That was his primary responsibility. And yet, while being completely unaware of it, the tribune was guided by the sovereign providential hand of God to intervene and to rescue his servant so that he could continue with his ministry and make it to Rome and do all that he was called to do. Isn't that amazing? Well, the tribune had no concept of that. But God was working that out behind the scenes. And then the tribune tried to question Paul. He asked who he was and what he had done. He literally had no idea who Paul was. Look at 34. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. <laughs> people in the crowd were more than willing to give the tribune the answer that they wanted to give him I'll tell you who he is I'll tell you what he's done he's defiled this temple he's, he's preached against the people he's preached against the law of Moses a Roman at this point would be going I don't care about any of that that's stupid what has he done against Rome that's all that mattered to him but he couldn't even discern what was going on? Because everyone was talking at once. I'm telling you, this must have sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher on a PA. Wah, 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 wah. Right? What happens when a whole bunch of people start talking at the same time or shouting? Mud. This must have sounded like gibberish. There were a few people there going, look, they're speaking in tongues. He could not understand what was going on or what happened or what he had done. He couldn't even hear the guy. He could not hear Paul because all of these voices were sounding off at the same time. And so he ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks for questioning and, if need be, interrogation, which the Romans were masters of. Look at 35 and 36. Now, this is, this is incredible. And when... He came to the steps. He was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed crying out, away with him. Man, when they reached the steps to the tower of Antonia, the mob realized something. 
If he goes off into those barracks, we're not going to get our wishes here. They're not going to put him to death. They're not going to kill him for us. They realize very quickly, man, don't let the Romans take him away. If they take him away, we won't get our justice. We won't be able to stop this cat. And so what did they do? They surged at Paul, this group. This mob surged and flooded onto the stairs and, and encircled them and, and were grabbing at Paul and reaching for him and trying to drag him back out into the courts where they could finish what they had began. And what happened? The soldiers literally had to take Paul and hoist him up over their heads to get him out of reach. That was one way to get him out of there was just to pick him up, throw him over their heads and to carry him out of there right up the steps. The mob was absolutely blinded, blinded at this point by their religious zeal. Because let me tell you something right now. As a Jew, you didn't go anywhere near a Roman soldier. And here they are, tugging at the Romans and probably hitting them and striking them and trying to get them out of the way to get to Paul and ripping at them. And that's just not what you did because guess what? You were met by a sword. And here they were filled with such, you know, fervency and, and religious fervor and, and violence that they didn't even care that there were Romans there. Now that's amazing. That's just not what you did. You don't mess with Romans. They'll kill you in a heartbeat. They can legally execute you on the spot. They can run a sword through you right there. And here they are ripping at them and trying to get Paul. This is how bad, they're just like rabid dogs. Ten pit bulls on a chihuahua. And I've seen it. The chihuahuas always win. <laughs> Makes no sense. It's like, you're scared of that? Ooh. This was an intense moment because just Jews, just, they just, first of all, you didn't touch Gentiles because now you were ceremonially un, impure and you had to go through the whole process, let alone a Roman soldier. This is just astonishing. And while carrying Paul up over their heads, up the stairs and keep in mind he's mangled he's beaten this mob stayed around them still reaching and grabbing and tugging and pulling and shouting away with him away with him and away with him literally means do away with him for good or what kill him they were literally shouting kill him kill him kill him kill him What is the major theme of this passage? Well, obviously, it's Paul's arrest. And that's what's happening. But I think that it's broader than that. Because we could just study the subject of Paul's arrest all day, and I'm not sure what the implications of that would be for us or how we would apply that. I need to go out and get arrested for Jesus. That might not be wise. Not if you do something stupid to make that happen. I stole those chocolate donuts for you, Lord. No. I think the thing that really stands out is, is the title of this sermon, and that's practice makes persecution, right? We're all familiar with that old adage, practice makes perfect. You know, if you do something, the same thing over and over and over, you get pretty good at doing it. I suppose if you were to practice your faith, you would get good at doing your faith, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is that when a believer puts their faith to practice, they will experience persecution. Guaranteed. Oh, it may come in the form of, and, and in our community, it's, it's not like it is in the Sudan or in the Middle East. But here, at the very minimum, at the very minimum, through practicing your faith, you can earn for yourself some criticism. And I get that all the time at work. I, I'm a bivocational pastor, so you know I work in the secular world, and, and I get all these weird religious jokes and images sent to me you know, of Catholic priests doing things. They should, you know, it's just weird. It's just weird criticism I get all the time. 
kind of kind of weird. The guys would just, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, you know, if I knew a guy was a Christian, I, I kind of behaved around him a little bit when I wasn't a Christian, you know. If there was a pastor around, all of a sudden I became holy. Oh, I just, it was just kind of this respect thing, you know, like I just didn't want to say things that maybe would be offensive and, you know, just, just caring about how that person might feel. I, I think my parents tried to raise me that way, but that's all gone today. Oh, people don't care. You know, I, <laughs> I probably mentioned this before, but I remember being at Home Depot looking for a part in a plumbing aisle and, and the employee comes up and goes, oh, it's right effing here. And I thought, you work here. You shouldn't be using that kind of language around employees. That's why I go to Lowe's now. But uh, what ha- You know, as an employee, you ought to have a little fear of, of your customer and not... Why, why would you be so emboldened to use that kind of language? You know, it's one thing if I initiate a conversation with them with that kind of language, then they feel like, okay, I've got a free pass. I can do it too. Well, I didn't go in there saying, I need an F in part. <laughs> Just said, I need a part. It's a cadaver boober. I have no idea what it does. It's in my toilet. It won't flush. In fact, it just made a moat in our living room. You know, how do I fix that? We need this heaven part. Ah, you know. People just have no. And they find out you're a Christian. It, it kind of inspires them to, to, to get more dirty, more critical, more nasty. They find out you're a pastor. It just goes through the roof. All of a sudden, they, you know, they start researching, Google searching pastor jokes. Dirty ones. At the very minimum, if you're living out your faith, you're going to get some criticism. And I think times are changing in our community, in our country, that it's, 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 it's going to go well beyond that, I think, in the future, in the near future. In fact, it already has in some circles, right? People have lost their businesses and things because of their stance on the truth and, and those things that they have the freedom to do were removed That's persecution. You know, when a believer lives out their faith in a way that honors the the very word of God, persecution will follow. It's just guaranteed. And isn't that what we've seen in our text? The apostle Paul put his faith to practice in the form of missions work and and preaching and teaching and church planting and discipleship. And then one day at the temple, a bunch of people stirred up persecution against him, right? He was seized and slandered and beaten and stoned and arrested and shackled and delivered over to the Romans. That's what practicing his faith got him. And that's the reality for all of us. If you are going to commit yourself to living out the truth, it's going to come. It's going to happen. Now let's not, and I'll get back to that, but let's not miss the forest for the trees here with this text. Be pretty easy to do that. There is something much grander that this whole text points to. And that's to Jesus. Like Paul, Jesus had also been persecuted, slandered, lies, deception made against him, right? They had a phony court set up for him and all these false witnesses came. Same thing's playing out in our text here in a way. Jesus had been persecuted and arrested and slandered and beaten and executed. And really what we see in our text is that Paul was simply following in Jesus' footsteps. And the thing that sets Jesus' experience apart from that of Paul or Stephen, who we mentioned earlier, or any other faithful believer or martyr, is that through Jesus' experience, through what he endured and went through, he secured redemption and salvation for his people. Huge difference. Paul and others suffered for Christ. And that's a good thing. And that's what we are called to do. But Jesus suffered for the church. Big difference. 
And that is the deeper meaning of this text. That is the meta-narrative of all scripture and this passage. The example we see in Paul points to the Savior, Jesus, who was treated just like Paul and who was executed, but there was something really big that happened through that. Our redemption happened. That's what we should see. Jesus said, all the prophets... All scripture, all that is here points to Moa. And it would be such a shame if I preached this sermon and missed that. And I have missed it countless times in my preaching. Back to practice makes persecution. If we put our faith to practice, we will experience persecution as Paul, Stephen, and Jesus did. And when it happens, when it happens, don't try to put an end to it. Don't try to maneuver and capitulate. So quickly when we feel the sting of what we're saying or doing, we're living these things out. So, you know, when we start to feel the sting of that, we tend to recoil, we tend to back up. Paul might have been able to say just a few words right here at this point to bring that to an end. Who knows? And what you see him do is endure it for the sake of Christ. Jesus could have called upon 10,000 angels And what you see him do is continue through with God's will and plan. And so when it comes, and I pray that it does come. Because number one, if you're persecuted, it means you're living out the faith, right? And it's secondly, number two, it's a badge of honor to suffer for Christ. So when it comes, do as the apostles did after they were beaten at the Sanhedrin for being associated with the name of Jesus. After taking 40 lashes minus one, what did Peter, John, and James do? They cried and went home to their mommies and said, I'm not gonna say anything about Jesus anymore because that really hurt. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. If you put your faith to practice, and just think about where you live you're probably not gonna get put to death here for your faith. As I said, maybe you'll have to deal with some criticism and all that, but just consider the world that you live in. If you're living out your faith in a way that honors God, we're talking about a world that, and you're an imperfect person, we're talking about a world that put a perfect person who loved perfectly, who spoke perfectly, who showed perfect grace and perfect mercy and spoke truth perfectly and believed perfectly. We're talking about a world who took a person who was absolutely perfect and tried to grind him into dust, who murdered him, who slaughtered him, who pinned him on a cross where he was to die. That's the world that we live in. And Jesus said, hey, they hate you. They hated me first. You just live out the faith, man. You're going to cause trouble. You don't have to be a jerk with it. You don't have to push it on anyone. You don't have to do any of that. All you got to do is live differently. How much criticism do you receive because you don't partake in the same things that some of those guys around you do? I get hit with that all the time. The guys I work with, man, I love them. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to show them Jesus. I'm trying to teach them about Jesus. And they're constantly trying to pull me into stuff. And one of the ways, and I receive a lot of criticism for not being a part of it, but one of the ways I witness to them is just by abstaining from what they do. And it comes with a cost. To be quite honest with you, sometimes I just don't like it. <laughs> I'm like that Smalley character on, uh, was it Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live? Yeah, you remember that guy? Remember him? Some of you are so young, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And he would say things like, I like me. I'm a likable guy. And he kind of said it with that voice. And so you wondered if he was male or female. Well, he looked male. That was a weird comment I just made. But it's true if you look up Stuart Smalley. I don't know where that stuff comes from. I don't think it's from the word. Maybe I should stop. My point is, is that I want to be liked. I want to be welcomed. And quite frankly, I want to be praised. 
something I'm working on. Now, if you live like a, according to God's word, you can just jettison all of that. Oh, you'll be, you will be loved by the brethren. And sometimes they give you a kick in the rear. Or they disappoint you, but they'll love you. The church will love you. That's why the church is here. The world will hate you. They'll despise you. They'll think you're stupid and feeble and Jesus is your crutch. Yeah, he is my crutch. And obviously, obviously yours is Schlitz malt liquor. I'd rather have Jesus. Everyone needs a crutch. This world's a hard place. So just know, just know that if you live out the faith, it's going to come. Endure it. Live out these examples and take the lashes, take the beatings, take the criticism. And rejoice as the apostles rejoiced. Amen? It's an amazing, amazing thing to be found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. In and through that suffering, you will have joy. Joy of our Lord. Father, as we enter into this time of communion, I pray that you would expose our hearts, the areas that, that we might be in sin. May we, maybe some of us have been cowardly. I, I, I do that at times. We haven't been bold. We've capitulated. We've stepped back. We've recoiled because those around us have become alarmed by our faith. Oh, embolden us, Lord, to continue to honor you. And that really and truly is the best thing for those around us, even though they don't know it. They don't need a bunch of wimpy Christians. They need Christians who love Jesus so madly that they're willing to take the stripes, to suffer for the name. We live in a culture that does everything that it can to avoid suffering. They've got a pill for everything these days. And yet you've called us to suffering. May we rejoice in that calling. May we have joy in the midst of that calling. May we be faithful to you. May we honor you in all that we do. May we live confessional, repentant lives before you and before others. And may we proclaim the gospel. May we become people of influence. You have placed us here strategically. I've questioned that because it's Modesto. And I can't think of a community or any community that's attached to Modesto. I can't think of any community or communities, local communities, that need the gospel of Jesus Christ more than this place. Oh, God, you've put us here for this time. May we honor you and live out the faith in a way that makes you known. And may we suffer well for the name of Jesus. May we remember what these elements represent. You're calling us to action this morning, Lord. Not that we could earn something with you, more favor, or keep the gates of heaven open, or salvation. We would be doing what we're doing. We would be obeying because you have saved us, because you've enabled us to obey, not because we're seeking to get something from you. And so remind us of that through these elements, because the elements represent our salvation and freedom the blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ, our Redeemer. May we enjoy this time of simple reflection, confession, and restoration. Restore us to you, and may we serve you. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Help yourselves. This is for believers.